Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, it's been a fairly flat market for quite a while, but materials and energy remain by far the most interesting sectors for a lot of our investors. In fact, in some respects, the only thing that investors are interested in currently. We were joined earlier this year and last year also by Gavin Wentz of Mine Life, who has covered the smaller end of the listed mining sector for decades but he's also been kind enough to talk about the larger end where some of our guys play. He's very kindly agreed to join us again to talk us through what's been happening and where some of the opportunities and challenges lie ahead. Gavin, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks very much, Gemma, and hello to all your uh, listeners. It's a, well, I know this this conversation is really popular and people are so interested to hear what you have to say. You've got those decades of experience. You know this end of the market so well. And it is where something is happening, which doesn't feel true across so much of what else investors are looking at at the moment. And there is so much going on in the materials and energy kind of space at the moment. It's hard to know where to start. But perhaps we could start with China, which is always in the news. But what are your thoughts on this really rather lacklustre reopening China's managed so far. We were so hopeful there was going to be this dramatic reopening and it would just ignite demand for everything we have to sell. We were all so excited. It hasn't quite played out that way. What are your thoughts on how that's going right now? Yes, it's it's obvious that markets were far too optimistic about the China reopening story Late last year, back in November 2022, when China surprised the world by dismantling their COVID restrictions, their COVID lockdowns, there was pretty much an immediate expectation that things would rebound pretty much overnight, certainly within the next few months. But that just hasn't happened. And I think the key reason as to why that hasn't happened, is that the fundamental problems with respect to China's economy have not gone away. And by that, I mean the elephant in the room is the issues with respect to China's property sector. They had emerged well before COVID and they hadn't disappeared over COVID. Uh, They might have been pushed into the background potentially in terms of international economic headlines, but we have seen those problems bubble to the surface once again. China's property sector in terms of the enormous levels of debt that are inherent within the sector have only gotten worse. And we've seen a government where in terms of stimulus measures to try and get the economy going, Throughout 2023, investors, financial markets had hoped that those stimulus measures would have more of an impact on China's economy. But here we are in September, and we're only just starting to see now the positive impact of some of those stimulus measures. And the, the, the cautionary tale, I think, with respect to China is that it's taking more and more stimulus to create an economic 
benefit. Now, how sustainable that economic benefit is going to be, we're not sure. The fundamental problems in the property sector are still there, but we have started to see over recent weeks a positive boost to some commodities, in particular iron ore. That's such a great summary of the scenario. I might actually get you to talk through some of the property issues just because there may be some people who didn't pick up on them early and we allude to them now without sort of giving people a lot of detail. And then I'd love you to talk through your point about stimulus is fascinating. You know, there are a few different steps the Chinese government have taken. They seem to be modest from a distance and markets were clearly hoping for more do you think they're going to do more? Do you think that'll put a floor under it? So let's talk about what's going on in the Chinese property market. And then if you could talk about the stimulus also a bit further, that'd be amazing. Well, quite simply, it's all related to debt and borrowings. And we've seen a number of big Chinese property developers, Evergrande being the highest profile of them all, but there are a number of others that have defaulted on their debt repayments. And that over recent years has really taken the gloss off China's economy in terms of growth. Property and construction has always been a really easy go-to with respect to China's authorities in terms of stimulating their economy. Whenever growth was starting to ease off or China's economy was going through one of its rare downturns, the playbook was always, let's stimulate our property sector. That will get things going again. Most importantly, it had a big impact on steel production, China's steel industry, which is far and away the biggest in the world. And that benefited us because we are the biggest exporter of iron ore in the world and close to the biggest exporter of coking coal in the world. So that was fantastic for Australia and fantastic for our government and fantastic for investors in our major miners, BHP, Rio and Fortescue, because their earnings are dominated by iron ore and those companies are the biggest iron ore producers in the world, with the exception of Brazil's Vale. So what we saw was China consistently over many years just stimulating its property sector, but eventually something has to give. And the amount of debt that was built up within the property sector has seen defaults, and it's a tremendous cause of concern to China's authorities. And the steel industry, which has always been the golden child, China's authorities in recent years have recognized that look, we just cannot simply just produce steel for steel's sake. They have imposed limits last year for the first time on steel production, a cap on steel production. They have re-implemented that production cap again in 2023. So Whilst we've seen a rally in the iron ore price this year, and particularly over recent weeks, to five-month high, uh, it's up about 17%, the iron ore price from its recent low of about $103, that was back in August. Um, there are some cautionary aspects with respect to the 
the, the iron ore sector. China's authorities do not like iron ore prices that are rising and out of control, and they are maintaining that cap on steel production. So whilst we've seen prices robust over recent weeks, there's probably reason for caution in terms of the amount of upside that there is in the iron ore price uh, for the foreseeable future, certainly between now and the end of calendar 2023, in my opinion. That's an awesome summary question for you, because I just haven't thought about it for a long time, but it's certainly for quite some time. You've mentioned Brazil's Vale and it was taken offline, to put it politely, for some time after the uh, the Tailings Dam disaster. And the story was that BHP was going to benefit so dramatically from being the uh, sort of last man standing in that space. Has that sort of all normalised now? Are we seeing a fair bit of supply coming out of Brazil? Yes, the the seaborne iron ore trade has returned to normal uh, with respect to Brazil. So the issues that they had with regards to the Tailings Dam disaster, Samarco, of which BHP was a was a fifty percent shareholder, those exports have have now recovered. So the international market certainly isn't short of iron ore. What's interesting, though, is that China, China, in terms of their imports, they have been picking up over recent months. There has been a recovery there. So we could say that the stimulus measures that have been implemented during 2023 are starting to have an effect. And there's also the possibility, and I think the likelihood, is that steelmakers are starting to stockpile iron ore. It's this is typically the time of the year where steel mills in China do start to accumulate inventories because they're approaching peak production season. So what happens in China, as typically happens in a lot of North America, is that industry tends to slow down and shut down to some degree over the the, the warmer months at the holiday period, and then it starts to ramp up again between now and the end of, of the calendar year. So we are seeing strength in China imports. We are starting to see prices recover quite solidly. And bear in mind that throughout most of 2023, we have seen the iron ore price not that much lower than $100 per tonne. I mean, we, we, we were a little bit lower than that. But in recent months, the price has shown quite significant resilience. So trading between that $100 per tonne mark on the downside and about $120, $122 per tonne on the upside. So you have to bear in mind that for an iron ore producer like BHP or Rio or Fortescue in Western Australia, their operating costs are sub $20 per tonne. If they're generating a price of $100 to $120, they are still generating fantastic margins. And that is why they are producing as much product as they can. That is why they are opening new operations. And that is why their their balance sheets are still very, very strong indeed. Yeah, that's quite extraordinary. <laughs> the numbers when you look at their uh, their profitability are quite incredible. Uh, and also for Australia, it matters a lot when you look at the uh, the federal budget. Uh, generally, the uh, Treasury will estimate iron ore at 55 or $60 a tonne. 
So <laughs> there's a reason why we keep coming in with all these wonderful budget surpluses that are such a surprise when you're making substantially more than that all the time and have done for what, a decade or more now. It's, uh, they seem to consistently get it wrong, but I imagine that uh, putting your numbers to the downside protects everybody, right? You don't want to see it go the other way. I think, yeah, being there's a there's room for caution, and I think that's the strategy. Uh, if we're conservative, it's much better to surprise on the upside. And, you know, amongst all of this, the iron ore price, despite the volatility in China, despite the ups and downs, it's it's up about 9% so far this year. But interestingly, the big miners who are most exposed to iron ore, their share prices are, are trading pretty much flat. I mean, BHP is down about 1% for the year, Rio and FMG. The other two major iron ore players in Australia, they're up about 2%. So iron ore price up 9%, the big iron ore producers are flat. And I think what that tells you is that investors are just staying away from the market and are continuing to stay away from the market. If we looked at the performance of these companies a couple of months ago, they would have all been in the red. But they have rallied uh, over the last month or two on the basis of a, I guess, greater optimism with respect to China, even though it's still very much in the embryonic stage of its recovery. Yeah, I think for investors, certainly for our guys, everyone holds so much of those stocks. It's not much incentive to buy more. They're doing okay. If we change tack a teeny bit, but similar story, oil price is also looking very strong at the moment, which is really tricky uh, for central banks. You know, they're fighting inflation, but you cannot avoid the impact of oil prices on consumers and on business. And their a high oil price tends to put a lot of upward pressure uh, on prices for pretty much everything. And then for consumers, crush their budgets as they need to fill their cars. Can you tell us why we're seeing that sort of upward pressure on oil prices at the moment and whether you think they're likely to stay high? Yes, absolutely. And look, oil is probably my most favoured commodity for 2023 uh, because there were a lot of stars that were aligning for the oil market at the start of the year. And there are indeed some hiccups in the first quarter and prices actually fell quite significantly. But what we've seen since that time is that all of these major factors have come into play. And at the moment, as we speak, the crude oil price is up about 16% since the start of the year. So it is one of the best performing commodities. It's almost outperformed iron ore by almost two to one. So on the demand side, which might surprise some people, we're seeing crude oil demand at record levels. We've never seen crude oil demand at this sort of level before. Uh, even prior to COVID, demand has recovered to exceed its pre-COVID highs. And we've just been through a major demand period, peak demand period in the Northern Hemisphere. We're moving towards another major demand period in this uh, towards uh, the end of the year of course in terms of northern hemisphere winter and the demand for heating fuel it's etc 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 but the united states is one of the biggest consumers of crude oil in the world they've just been through their summer holiday period uh, they call it driving season over there so demand for gasoline was very very high indeed so where are we with oil well oil prices are trading above 90 dollars per barrel at the moment they're trading at 92 dollars per barrel this is the the first time 
since November last year that we've seen prices at this uh, sort of level. As I said, demand very, very strong throughout the world. At the same time, though, we're seeing ongoing supply cuts from two of the biggest oil producers in the world, not just the OPEC group uh, themselves, but Saudi Arabia and Russia. At the same time as we're seeing world record global consumption, they have implemented production cuts. And just recently that they have announced that they're extending their 1.3 million barrels per day in output cuts through to the end of this year. And so a lot of the major industry groups that analyze the oil market, for example, the International Energy Agency over the past week, they've warned that there is going to be a significant supply shortfall this year, particularly in the second half of this year, that threatens price volatility. Well, we already have price volatility, as anybody knows, who still drives an internal combustion engine. If you've gone to refuel your car, you're probably looking at petrol prices that are at record highs. Well, it's all tied in with this rising crude oil price environment, where we're looking at a shortfall of about 3 million barrels a day in the, during the last quarter of this year. So very strong demand, constrained supply, something has to give. Back to high school economics, <laughs> where we, uh, we get the uh, simple scenario. One question on that one also then, uh, and I take from your response that that pressure is going to remain uh, on the oil price, upward pressure. US has been running down its reserves. Does that factor in? It's certainly something that seems to get a fair bit of attention in the media. It makes people quite anxious. Sure, US reserves. And it's also not only declining US reserves in terms of their strategic reserve, but uh, US production. And the vast production these days in terms of US oil comes from what's known as shale oil. And what we saw, what we've seen over the, let's talk about the last decade, is that the US with the emergence of its shale oil industry actually surpassed Saudi Arabia, surpassed Russia to become the world's number one producer of crude oil. Over recent years, however, with oil price volatility, what we've seen is the level of output from US shale oil has certainly peaked. It's not easy. It's not necessarily highly sustainable. And we could talk for hours probably about the uh, what some have called the, the Ponzi scheme nature of US shale production because it came out of the post-GFC environment. Uh, those of us that remember the GFC back in 2008 where the US government was uh, putting a lot of cheap money out there, interest rates were at record low levels, and a lot of it went into uh, areas of investment that could generate a, a stronger return. So you had the emerging US shale industry. At the time, you had a lot of cheap money and a lot of brokers putting investors' funds in US shale. And all of a sudden, guess what? A lot of wells were drilled. A lot of oil came on stream. At the time, it was relatively cheap to produce from those wells. And a lot of companies made a lot of money. There was a lot of cash flow. But there were warnings around at the time that uh, the true cost of this oil was not as cheap as the 
punters in the market believed because what you had to do, the rate of decline from shale fields was very, very high indeed, much more significant than your typical crude oil well. So you had to keep reinvesting in drilling. Uh, so that was fine when there was lots of cheap money around. But uh, as in recent years, when that money has dried up, uh, a lot of these US shale companies were exposed and the amount of US shale production uh, dropped significantly. Now it hasn't gone away, but what they're co doing now is they're concentrating on the most productive US shale fields. So that US, uh, as an oil producer was a big swing producer. Whenever OPEC would cut back on production, the US would boost their production and keep oil prices relatively stable and at lower levels, but that's gone. So OPEC have effectively reasserted their dominance over the oil market. And those shell producers that are left in the United States uh, have learnt their lessons. They're real companies. They are much happier to produce oil at higher prices, a higher price environment that makes more money for their shareholders. They can give that money back to shareholders whilst keeping some to reinvest in new fields. It's not just about pumping as much oil as you possibly can because they have learnt their lessons. So that's another big factor in terms of the crude oil price environment. The fact that US shale production isn't as important as it was, say, five years ago in terms of dampening the impact of rising prices. Yeah, that's really telling. And it's almost amusing when you talk about free money after the GFC, it was not quite as free money after COVID. Uh, so we've had a lot of free money in the last 15 years. It's uh, so much free money kicking around. And then suddenly you realize that uh, you have to pay the true price of things and the, uh, the supply and demand scenario changes quite dramatically. Well, we can't talk about materials, particularly the smaller end of the market, without talking about lithium. And I know there'll be so many people listening going, could you just hurry up and get to lithium, please? Because that is absolutely where they've had the most fun in the market for probably the last two or more years. It's really been where traders have been trading. Those who wanted uh, some real price action have loved participating. There's been a real, certainly since we spoke last, a real re-rating of different parts of the lithium market. Can you talk us through that and whether you think that was a necessarily uh, important stabilization, a bit like the shale situation in the US or whether investors can go, right, we're good now, we're sort of back to the races? If we look at the last five years in terms of the lithium sector worldwide, there's no doubt that it has been overall a positive story for investors. The last two years though, there's been more aspects of negativity. And again, probably the, the most significant theme in terms of negativity with respect to the lithium sector, we go back to China. Their lockdowns, the fact that uh, even when those lockdowns ended, we haven't seen the sort of economic bounce back that optimists in the market might have expected. And that's really important for lithium for two reasons. One, China has been and still is the biggest market for uh, EVs in the world, and China is the biggest producer of EVs in the world. But over the last couple of years, the government, the authorities there have ended their subsidies for the EV industry. The industry now has to more or less stand on its own two feet. 
In terms of production, there is quite a negative situation in China because in terms of the battery industry, but most particularly EVs themselves, markets haven't seen the same level of production as perhaps optimistics forecasts might have expected. The lithium sector in China is still very weak. And probably the best example of that are spot lithium carbonate prices in China. Because what they tell us that uh, they've fallen since the start of calendar 2023, right now they're down by about 68%. So lithium prices, I think, are very, give a very good read on sentiment and the fundamentals of the industry within China. Now, that's not to say that things won't change, but it is a cautionary tale. And I think what falling lithium prices have done is it has forced investors to look a little bit more critically at all companies within the sector. And when I'm talking about all companies, I'm talking about companies at the smaller end of the market that perhaps had benefited from a rising price environment over, say, the previous three to four years. And that old an analogy that a rising tide lifts all boats. There's no doubt that if you had bought a basket of ASX junior lithium explorers five years ago, you would have been well up in terms of profitability on your initial investment. But what's happened over the last 12 to 18 months is that falling price environment in China has spooked the market to some degree. It led to some of the speculative money flowing out of the, the lithium sector. And a lot of that speculative money, given that there were so many ASX junior lithium companies that had appreciated in price quite significantly, there are investors that were saying, hey, it's probably time I took some profits off the table, if not all my profits, at least some. So it became a bit of a self-fulfilling story as far as lithium was concerned. China weak, falling lithium prices, and then some of the speculative money coming out of juniors. And then what we also saw was that uh, it wasn't all roses as far as even some of the more advanced companies that had been uh, enjoying significant share price rises. For example, a company like Core Lithium, which has done a great job in terms of getting its operation in the Northern Territory into production. Its share price performance has been somewhat volatile. It's never easy moving from a an explorer and an appraisal company to moving into production and they have experienced hiccups. You look at a, a company like Lake Resources in Argentina, which had been a market darling, which had ridden for risen from three or four or five cents up to several dollars. Uh, they're trading now below 20 cents again. They disappointed the market in terms of their production timeframes. So it's one thing to enjoy the benefits of a rising market, but when your market capitalization increases significantly, investors start to take a much harder look at the fundamentals that are underlying your significant market valuation. And if it detects weaknesses, then 
you will start to see funds flowing out at a very, very rapid rate. And so it's fair to say that over the last 12 months, it's been a much tougher road for the lithium sector in Australia, with a couple of exceptions. And a lot of it is to do with neurology. The James Bay thematic in Quebec and Canada, we've seen a host of companies flocking to James Bay. And those companies that have moved to James Bay have typically enjoyed quite a significant re-rating. It's regarded as an emerging lithium province, but even that thematic is probably starting to die off a little bit. The other thematic is uh, the Andover discovery by Azure Minerals in Western Australia, a fantastic discovery. We saw a similar pegging rush and are still seeing a similar pegging rush with companies pegging ground around Andover, but even that is starting to possibly start to, to die down. So the end of the day, we come back to fundamentals with respect to any commodity and any sector. And perhaps some of the easy gains with respect to lithium perhaps have already been made. That's an exceptional summary. And I must say, when I look at what our investors are doing, certainly Core Lithium is one that they have, they probably didn't pick the peak, but they certainly were quite keen to exit it earlier than expected because so many of them have done so well, right? They've been holding this stuff, as you say, for quite a few years now. They've not thankfully come to it too late and uh, find that uh, when you've done extremely well, taking a little bit off the table can be quite a good idea, particularly when you can see there is a whole sector re-rating going on and it was quite apparent that was happening. One shift then we talked about China's reopening being somewhat underwhelming so far and this idea that the tide's gone out on the free money, there has been a fair amount of change in markets as people realise that profitability is actually terribly important and that you need to be able to get some runs on the board in many cases. Bond markets have been predicting a recession for what, nearly 12 months now in the US. I think it's at 10 months, I was told the other day. And yet it hasn't materialized. So there's this ongoing conversation between a soft landing and a hard landing. In this fairly uncertain environment, most investors who've been around for a while feel that gold is something you want to have in your portfolio because it has that protective nature. It's so defensive. That's the theory. We've discussed this before and I'm fascinated to know what your thoughts are on whether or not that theory is playing out and whether investors do benefit from having gold or in Australia, they tend to go for the gold miners, right? Whether that's something that's worth holding or whether it's just not quite the defensive play it was 20 or 30 years ago. Yes. Well, if we look at gold in terms of what it's done this year, it's been an up and down market generally for commodities right across the board. Gold is up around 6%, which I think is a really, really strong achievement. But it's not just about where we are now. I've always been positive about, about gold because I look at where the market is now compared to where it was, say, 25 years ago. And the factors that are in play that are continuing to drive the gold price upwards. If we look at where gold price is right now, it's trading at about 1930 in terms of US dollars, $1,930 uh, per ounce, which is not that far off 
its all-time peak. In an environment where we have significant uncertainty, prospect of further interest rate rises, currency uncertainty, I think the gold price is performing very, very strongly indeed and is fulfilling its role. Let's go back to where gold was almost 25 years ago. Gold has been in a long-term uptrend since its low of about $255 US dollars in about August 99. Now, that makes it close to 25 years of price growth. So gold is up around about seven and a half times over less than 25-year period. In Aussie dollar terms, which of course is what's perhaps even more relevant to our investors and our gold companies, the increases have been even greater. You know, the price has risen from a low of about $386 back in 99 to a price currently of about $3,000. Now, that's an increase of about 7.7 times. So why, why have gold prices increased so significantly over that time? Well, my belief is it's all correlated to the growth of debt worldwide. And I don't want to sound too boring, but if we go back to what happened in the GFC and the post-GFC environment, COVID and the post-COVID environment, there have been record amounts of money that have been printed and thrown into the financial markets. Now, when that happens, something has to give. And when you have rising levels of debt, you typically have declining values in terms of currency, including the US dollar. Now, central banks recognize this. They know what their, what their currency is doing. And so coincidentally, those central banks have turned from being net sellers where they were 20 to 25 years ago. They were big sellers. There were central banks all around the world, including in the UK and our own central bank. Peter Costello sold most of our gold at below $300 per ounce. Those central banks have turned from being net sellers of gold to be very strong net buyers of gold. And last year, central banks around the world bought gold at record levels, and they have been increasing their purchasing year after year. So what does that tell us? If central banks are buying gold, then perhaps investors should be as well. And investors have been buying gold too. So price of gold, $1,900 plus. It's no accident that prices are trading at strong levels. And if I could just go back to debt, particularly in a place like the United States, where debt has grown exponentially. Of course, the government there has to service those borrowings. It actually has to make debt repayments. And the, the cost of servicing that debt has been escalating. So at the moment, it represents about 2.5% of GDP in the United States. This is this year. By 2028, the proportion of GDP debt resurfacing will exceed the spending that the United States will, the amount of money that US United States will spend on defense in that year. It already exceeds the amount that they spend on social services. So it is worrying and it is a growing component. And this is significant. Of course, when you have a high interest rate environment like we do now, it makes servicing that debt even more costly. So putting all of that together, I'm a great believer in gold. It's not just gold equities, of course, that investors can play the gold market. Um, and at the moment, of course, 
investors have typically shied away from the equity market because of risks, all the risk factors that we've spoken about. But gold stocks are doing well. And at the same time, there are other avenues for investors. So they can buy physical gold, they can buy into ETFs. So it's not just equities themselves. But if you have a look at the gold price, it's doing very, very well indeed. And it is part of a 25-year long uh, uptrend that I don't see changing anytime soon. That's a really comprehensive answer. And uh, I think I mentioned this in our last conversation, but if I didn't, I'm going to mention it now. The economist I worked with uh, in the early 2000s, I remember the gold price was around $300. And he was absolutely outraged that it was so cheap and so determined that uh, that all of the financial advisors that I worked with put some in the portfolios for their clients that uh, they would not regret that decision. That was well over two decades ago. So hopefully they took his advice back then, all that time ago. That was wonderful advice. And it was a time when those in the market, a lot of those in the market, particularly people that were new to the market, financial market, were saying that gold was now irrelevant. We did not need gold anymore. We had financial instruments that could take the place of gold, that would offset risk, et cetera, et cetera. You did not need to buy gold to offset risk. What was the point of owning gold? It doesn't generate a return. It just sits there. Well, guess what? Uh, as opposed to what have we seen rising since? It's been debt uh, and currencies have gone the other way. So for any investor that has physical gold, they would have seen as your fund manager uh, chap was suggesting, gold is a great thing to have in your portfolio. And really, as you look over the last 25 years, it's performed really well throughout numerous uh, investment cycles and market cycles. Well, the interesting thing was he was an economist, not a fund manager. And so he was not responsible for asset allocation decisions or any of the actual investments we were supposed to be making. He very rarely made a call on those things, usually on rates or currency, as you say. But uh, to to give a specific asset class recommendation was very interesting and it paid off. Absolutely. Two final questions for you then, and you've been so comprehensive in your responses, so perhaps you've already alluded to these. But in this environment, you know, we've got a lot of investors who are trying to look through the noise, trying to see something that's going to attract their attention. What are the opportunities that you're focused on or what do you think investors might like to pay a bit more attention to? Okay. If I was looking at sectors, individual sectors, the one with the most potential at the moment uh, is probably uranium. Why do I say uranium? Well, the uranium spot price so far this year, since the beginning of this year, is up about 38%. So it is by far the best performing commodity. It's The spot price is trading at an all-time high. They're a bit like the oil sector. There are coincidental demand and supply factors that are coalescing at the same time that are driving these very, very strong prices. Now, the, there have been people talking about the recovery of the uranium sector going way back to Fukushima, uh, the post-Fukushima environment in 2011, 2012. It hasn't really happened. We've started to see a nascent recovery over the last few years. But the big thing that's held back the uranium market is there has always been latent supply hanging around. 
Originally, it was old Soviet-era nuclear warheads that had been decommissioned and the enriched uranium had been taken out of those warheads and effectively supplied the market uh, when there was any shortfalls. The other factor has been whenever we've been through a period of price weakness in terms of uranium, that has caused some production shutdown, i.e. shutdown or shuttering of production that may not be economic at those price levels. But when the price has recovered, we've seen a lot of that production come back on stream. So that has crowded out those companies that are hoping to bring new sources of supply to the market, i.e. commission new mines. It's this reality that there's always been a supply overhang from operations that have shuttered, but will inevitably come back on as prices have recovered. And we've seen that, but the big issue now is that uh, power generation companies are thinking ahead with this move to alternative energy. There is no doubt that uranium will play a significant role in that transition. So we are looking at record levels of uranium demand in the coming decades. How does that get satisfied? Well, it doesn't get satisfied by Soviet era warheads and uh, uranium from shuttered production. We are going to see need to have, and we're going to need to see new sources of supply coming on stream. In order to incentivize that, we need higher prices. So that's exactly what's happening now. And it's those power utilities that are saying, hey, we want to lock in supply right now because we see the way the market is going. We need new production to come on stream. And so that is assisting in terms of the whole discussion around nuclear energy. And it's creating this very strong pricing environment that I really can't see changing. I think what we are going to see, or I'm very, very confident in terms of what we're going to see, is we're going to see prices continue to increase. And of course, Eric Sprott, his investment group, is one of the major investors in the uranium market. They bought in in a major way, bought physical uranium. They hold a sizable position in the spot uranium market because they believe prices have to go higher. And what we are seeing now in the in terms of the market is prices are going higher. So I think it's going to be a very, very sustained recovery indeed. And I think the uranium sector, again, it comes back to energy. I think it's an underrated sector. And I think it's one that investors should look at very, very closely between now and the end of the year and also into 2024. That's such an interesting one, and it's always exciting to get people looking at something new. Uh, certainly also giving me the opportunity to talk about uh, Soviet-era warheads, which I haven't talked about on the podcast before, so we'll, <laughs> we'll work that in somehow. Final question then, where should investors be a little bit cautious in this environment? There's still a lot going on. Anything that makes you a little bit nervous? I think the smaller end of the resource sector in the near term is a market where I think investors have to be cautious. If we look at the performance of the bigger companies, we can see that Rio, Fortescue, BHP, for example, they've traded sideways for most of the year in terms of how they're performing. It won't be until we see some of the major funds feeling confident enough again to come into the market in a major way 
to move the big miners that we will really see that momentum generated. And when you see that momentum generated at the bigger end of town, it starts to trickle down to the tier two miners and the juniors. At the moment, the junior resource sector looks quite weak. There's not a lot of speculative interest. A lot of investors have been burnt. A lot of investors are on the sidelines. And what we're seeing in the current environment too, which is exacerbating the problem, a lot of exploration companies, let's be honest, most small resource companies are explorers. The vast majority of them are explorers. They're not producers. So they don't have any self-sustaining income. So they have to go out to the market and raise money. A lot of those companies were hoping, are hoping for a turnaround in market fortunes before the end of the calendar year. They're running low on cash. There's a reality that we're getting very, very close to the end of calendar year. Once you get to November, discussions are off. People are thinking about other things. They're thinking about holidays and Christmas presents and Christmas parties and all of that sort of stuff. Probably even when you get to Melbourne Cup Day, you probably rule things off. But so that means a lot of companies are running low on cash. They either have to cut back on expiration in a major way, make it through until probably end of the first quarter next year, which is when the next window for raising is available to them. That means there's not going to be a lot of activity going on, which doesn't interest shareholders. Or the other option for them is they try and raise money now, which is what a lot of companies are doing. In a difficult market environment where share prices are low, having to issue new stock, share prices are, are decreasing even further. So equity prices at the junior end of the market are quite weak. We need to have more clarity around China. We need to have more clarity around the future of interest rates, potential for let's hope that the recessionary fears have gone away, but they are still lingering. We need to have clarity around a whole lot of issues before we start to see money coming back into the, the resource market in a major way. And initially, of course, it goes into the bigger stocks and then it filters down to the juniors. So probably for the next six months, I would say, it's still going to be a very difficult environment at the small end of the market. It won't mean that individual companies won't perform well in terms of, say, discoveries and discovery potential if they're in the right place at the right time and generating good results. But as a sector, it's difficult to see a lot of upside in the in the junior space, given that a lot of those companies are low on cash and having to raise money at lower share price levels. They, uh, a very helpful word of caution. Gavin, at MindLife, you provide research for investors. You often provide commentary in the media on all of the sectors, all of the things that we've talked about. You're such a wealth, I was going to say mine of information, a wealth of information in this sector and in this field. Where can people go to find out more about MindLife and the work that you do? Well, you can come directly to our website, which is uh, mindlife.com.au. We offer a subscription. And generally what we do is we we follow the ASX share market typically and we focus exclusively on junior companies. And we've been around long enough to see the ups and downs through many, many cycles. So none of this is new uh, and we're learning all the time, I think like investors are. But uh, I think being around for a long time gives us perspective in terms of where things are. And things are never as bad as you think they are. And markets will always turn around, and particularly when we're on this uh, this growth trajectory, particularly as it relates to 
the energy transition. There are going to be a lot of opportunities in the resource sector that are opening up over the next five to 10 years, but markets at the moment are very much concerned about the here and the now. And the here and the now involves a lot of negative stories and a lot of uncertainty, but we will put that behind us and there's a lot of opportunity ahead. So the fundamentals in terms of commodity demand growth haven't changed. Uh, if anything, we're just kicking the can down the road uh, in, in the current environment, but uh, we're going to need more discoveries. We're going to need more money into the junior end of the market. We're going to see more consolidation. So it's going to be a very, very exciting ride in the years ahead. Yes, I can see a lot of our investors pretty keen to uh, to join you on that. Gavin from Mind Life, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thanks, Gemma, and thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Also, we love hearing from you. We get fantastic feedback from you guys. Love getting your questions and topics you'd like to hear more about. This is always one of them. Uh, please just email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.